Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line, as always, by the Athletics beat writer, Tim Britton. Tim, we got a lot to talk about today. Spring training games are underway. There's some Michael Conforto contract talk in the air. Uh, we got a great question from a reader. But first, I learned something about you this week from a chat you did. You have lived in New York City for several years and never ordered food delivery? So we're coming up on, I moved to New York in March of 2018. So coming up on the third anniversary of moving to New York and I have yet to order delivery. Uh, I live in Queens in a a wonderful neighborhood called Sunnyside. uh, And there are all of these good restaurants within reasonable walking distance. And, you know, when I want uh, Bolivian food, for instance, uh, like like, uh, my wife and I had on Monday night, uh, you know, we walked to the good Bolivian place uh that was that was you know within 15 minutes or so and that that makes you feel better when you're housing said bolivian food moments later uh and eating fries at 12 p.m or papitas at 12 p.m uh 12 a.m i should say midnight uh later that night uh because you got your good walk-in so that's that that's my stance i'm not against delivery you know in any context it's just when i live close to places i I don't feel the need to engage a middleman do you think you're better than me uh, uh, yeah, more just, or less. Never once, you've never once gotten lazy and just said, like, just bring the pizza to my house. There, you know, there was one time, uh, Mets fans may remember it, it they were playing uh, in Miami last year. It was actually a Robert Gazelman, Jordan Yamamoto start. It was a terrible baseball game. I forget what the, the final score was, but the first first inning took, le- first two innings took like an hour and a half. Uh, and I had, or- uh, we, we ordered pizza from a place that's, you know, an eight minute walk away. And I had no idea that it was pouring rain outside. Uh, and like, I walked outside as it, seeing the rain. I was like, oh yeah, this, this was one we should have should have just gotten the delivery on. I guess once you decide that you have that principle, then you kind of got to run with it. But I will just say, having people bring food to your house is an amazing development that we've got here in the civilized world. I would, I would recommend it heartily. I just did it like an hour ago. Uh, <laughs> spring training games are underway. Uh, we... Uh, have a couple of low-scoring affairs to start the season. All of the spring training games are against one of four teams, which is which is fun. It's just you can just read the schedule, and it's just crazy rhythm of of Nationals, Cardinals, Astros, Marlins, Nationals, Marlins, Astros, Cardinals, Nationals, Cardinals. You know, I, and that's not bad exactly, but um, that's what's going on. Do we care at all? I mean, we care because it's fun to like see baseball happening again, and and Jeff McNeil bang out a, a hanging curveball from Framber Valdez on Tuesday afternoon. I, I think. And he I, hit I do, the heck out. He hit the heck out of that. That yeah, was, that, that was, was fun. That yeah. was a no doubter. Um, I, I think, I think we're seeing the shift or at least I'm seeing the shift in the, in fan bases now where I think the more, the, the people that I interact with most 
on Twitter and stuff from the fan base, the, the fan base comments that I see are more attuned to the idea that spring training doesn't matter. Because, I, you know, uh, when, I, when I was first covering spring training, it seemed like everyone would talk themselves into whatever was going on that spring, whether it was, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. in Boston mm-hmm. having uh, a ridiculous spring in 2013, uh, which was two years before he, he arrived as an everyday player. Uh, they want, you know, people would want Kyle Kendrick to win a starting role out of spring training because he had had like three nice starts. Uh, I don't feel like you see that from fan bases as much. So I have to like tone down my preachiness about none of this matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there are, there are small things that matter. Like right. uh, you want to see the Mets be a little bit better at base running, which is why it was disappointing when literally the first batter of spring, Brandon Nimmo gets a base hit and gets thrown out because he aggressively rounded first. Sounds like there might have been some extenuating circumstances with the team like betting the first person to get a hit to stretch it into a double. But still, if you're going to get thrown out in that situation, Brandon, stretch it into a double, you know? Uh, and, you know, you, you take note of when guys are pitching, who's pitching how long, you know, how who's playing where and how often. Uh, you know, if J.D. Davis starts playing every day in left field, that shows you he might not be their third baseman. Um, those kinds of things are, are what I pay attention to more than the statistical results and even more so than how guys look because I've been, you know, you can watch a guy in spring and he can look amazing or look terrible uh, and it just go the other way on him. You know, Robinson Cano looked great in spring of 2019 uh, and it didn't mean anything. Steven Matz looked great in spring and summer training camp last year uh, and it, it didn't really translate and I'm, you've seen it go the other way. So it's it's tempting to extrapolate everything, but you just kind of stay away from that. Yeah, and I think that's all right, especially I think that the there's a distinction between saying nothing that happens in a spring training game matters and no spring training stat matters because I fully believe that no spring training stat matters. I don't care what your batting average is. The, the competition varies so greatly across the course of any given spring training game that, you know, maybe you're, you're beefing up on, on a ball pitchers or whatever. Um, but I do think that, you know, obviously they are, doing some assessment in these situations because there are there are roster decisions to be made and to me it it always seems like and you you can correct me here that you know what they're looking for is not how how many hits did you have this spring but like hey like let's check out how uh you know jose martinez really plays the outfield or runs the bases and you know how much how much is he going to hurt us out there if we need him uh is that uh is that a guy we can we can keep around as uh, as our 26 man on the roster those little things and and so it's more like you know and and i'm 100 with you in saying like i can't make that assessment i'm not a scout but i i do believe major league coaches are, are qualified to say like hey you know what we didn't know this guy's a great base runner who gets great reads on on fly balls, and you know maybe just for that reason we, we keep him around over this guy. Things like that. Yeah, you know the, those fringe roster battles of which the Mets don't have very many actually this mm-hmm. spring. Un- unusually, like you go back to, to 2019 again in, in the spring, uh, and you didn't really know whether Alonzo was going to take that first base job and run with it. You didn't know where, where Dominic Smith was professionally. You know there was it seemed like there was a chance that you were going to start opening day in 2019 with Todd Frazier playing first base and Jed Lowry playing third. Uh, those guys got hurt in spring and that allowed Alonzo to look great in spring, allowed Smith to look great in spring, allowed both of them to make the roster. And neither has really looked back in the time since that, that was meaningful. Uh, you know, your example with Martinez, like if, if we find out that Jose Martinez has turned himself into a reasonable outfielder, that that's meaningful. Um, I, I don't 
I don't think he has is is my guess. Um, so, you know, the, it's rare. <laughs> you, you I mean, it's it. rare for a guy to become like a wildly better <laughs> defender across the course of his of his career. It, ha- it can happen. But um, it would be, you know, who, it, who knows? It would be kind of ironic if like Jose Martinez was the one outfielder the Mets were able to make so much better defensively in spring. That right. Like, and Dominic now Smith like a- is the same. Brandon Nimmo's the same. But Jose Martinez now is gold glove caliber in right field where you already have Conforto. Well, I learned today that they brought in Tony Tarasco to be their outfield coach. Of Jeffrey Mayer fame. Yes. Um, let's talk about uh, something that does matter in, I think, a big way and, and something you wrote about this week which is Michael Conforto is one of the stories. I mean, I think probably the big stories of this camp are the same story, which is just these extensions that are sort of looming, that that everybody wants the Mets to, at least fans want the Mets to extend Michael Conforto. Certainly fans want the Mets to to extend Francisco Lindor. We know it's going to cost quite a bit. You did some gory, gory math here. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I went into, uh, you know, I did it with Lindor back in January just after they traded for him. Uh, and then I did it with Conforto la- this past week, kind of looking at the guys who have, have produced similar numbers to him. Uh, and it's it's complicated because you've got a shortened season in there, uh, and a shortened season where Conforto played really well. Uh, so you don't know whether to give him like full, let's pretend that was 162 game season credit for mm-hmm. that. Uh Certainly like Marcelo Zuna, who had the best season of his career last year, was not rewarded financially as if that were like a seven win above replacement kind of season, uh, but like it would have been over 162. So that, like, you know, I started with this comparison to Ozuna and George Springer, the two outfielders this, that were on the market this past year. And Conforto, you know, he's younger than Springer. You know, by the time he signs his next deal, he'll be two years younger than, than what Springer was when he signed this past offseason. But he's not quite as good. You know, hasn't been, doesn't have the track record, uh, doesn't play center field the way Springer does. Probably, you know, if, if we're talking about a high end of what Conforto can make in free agency, it's probably what Springer made, maybe a bit longer contract. So $25 million a year. You know, Scott Boris might say eight years uh, for so the $200 million total. That's the high end. I don't expect him to actually get that or hold out for that in an extension. When you talk about the low end, like Ozuna, Four for 65, that, that's way too low, uh, I think we can agree. Uh, and so then you look at, you know, I looked at like Xander Bogarts, who's not an outfielder, but is a Scott Boris client who signed in the spring training before he hit free agency. And he's a guy who was like, okay, with a, was embraced a hometown discount in a way that I don't think Conforto will, uh, which is not to speak ill of Conforto's connection to the Mets. It's just Bogarts was much more gung-ho about that in Boston than, than Conforto has been in Queens. Uh, and then... I looked at J.D. Martinez, and that's one where I think Conforto looks a little bit better than Martinez, uh, especially according to, to wins above replacement. You know, war probably underrates Martinez a little bit because it underrates designated hitters and, and really bad defenders. Uh, but, you know, they, he's making $22 million a year, so that seems like the low end of what we can expect for Conforto. So that kind of hammers it home to a smaller range, mm-hmm. 22 to $25 million for six or seven years. So I thought, you know, six for 144, that's six years, 24 million each. Yes, that math checks out. Um, So a little bit less than Springer, maybe throw in an opt-out. Other Boris extensions have included opt-outs, the ones for for Bogarts and for Steven Strasburg. Uh, So that's where I thought would be, you know, if I were uh, 
the Mets or or Conforto, I felt that would be a, a reasonable meeting point uh, if they were talking this spring. What was your number using that same, I assume that same methodology, what was your number for Lindor? So Lindor, I looked at two different ways. It was kind of, does he want to max out the per year, uh, which I thought would be like eight years and $280 million. I believe that's 35 per year. Uh, or did he want to max out like total package, in which case it would be like 11 for 330 or something like that. Right, like the, 30 the million a year, deal. but yeah, like you know, where the team gets the lower average annual value helps them out with the the luxury tax moving forward, but you get more in the end. Do you think there is a way they can do both and stay afloat? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, Sandy Alderson said on Monday, even Steve Cohen runs out of money at some point. Uh, questionable. Not true. I don't, I don't know true. that. That's, you know. I don't 14 billion dollars is so much money it's just at, at that point and at that point your money is just clearly making money at like an, an a enormous rate right like the, he could spend a a, a billion dollars on payroll for 14 years in a row I guess if he wanted to be broke by the time it was done I don't think it works that way I don't know anything about money. Go on. He could sign Francisco Lindor to 42 different $330 million contracts if he right. wanted to. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think they can afford it that way. I think, uh, you know, I, I think if you explicitly say, like, we didn't sign George Springer because we we wouldn't have been able to sign Michael Conforto on top of that, it, it signals that you should probably sign Michael Conforto. Uh, and it, I think it shows more of a willingness there to when you say that out loud. Um you know, I, I don't know that they both get done right now. Like, if I had to, to handicap it, I think Lindor is likelier. He's been someone who, huh. you know, if, if Lindor didn't play in Cleveland, if he played for a franchise that was willing to pay him what he, he's really worth on the open market, I think that team wouldn't have traded him. They would have signed him to an extension. This this isn't like a, uh, I can't think of a, play, you know, like Mookie Betts wanted to hit free, wanted to hit free agency, didn't like what Boston was offering. Um, but I, I can't think of like a, a player who, uh, just said basically uh, from the start, I'm hitting for agency regardless. Uh, maybe Jacoby Ellsbury was like that with the Red Sox. Uh, like just really wanted to hit for agency. Lindor has not struck me as that uh, at any point. Uh, Conforto, I think, is going to be a little harder bargain to drive uh, because it's Boris because um, and, and because he hasn't expressed as much of a willingness to sign an extension uh, as Lindor has in the past as some other guys have in the past. Uh, I don't know what his connection is if his connection to Queens is stronger than maybe I think like Strasburg, no one thought he was really loved DC and it turns out he did, uh, and signed that extension. The first one, um, before hitting free agency. So there's the chance. I, I think the, the financial ability capacity is there. I think the willingness from the Mets side should be there. I think the willingness from Lindor is there. And I think Conforto is open to it, but I think Conforto probably wants it a little bit more on his terms uh, I mean, they all want it on their terms, but I, I can imagine it being that one being a little bit harder negotiation because he's a bit more of a there's a bit more wiggle room in, in how you value him as a player. Than I think well, and he, Lindor. I think also he hasn't been playing for the Indians for his entire career. Right now is not. It's just like you're you're just bringing Francisco Lindor over over here. And, and it's like this is guess what? Like new owner, 14 billion dollars. Mm -hmm. You got a awesome coming to America jacket. You've got your own new <laughs> footwear line that you've just put out. Like you're the star now in a star place. 
um, not a place where they're just like constantly dismantling their awesome pitching staff and staying good somehow, but not paying anybody. So I could, I think I could imagine just from like the emotional standpoint being Lindor, just being like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll get, I'll take your 11, like 11 years. I'll sign up for 11 more years of, of a rich owner and a, and a big market and, you know, and all of these different things that come along with it. I, I don't know. That's, that's, I, I, it might be easy for me to say because I, I live, I choose to live here already, uh, right? But uh, I think I don't know. I, how, I would like to see it happen. How many days in your life have you said out loud, "I'm living the dream, and it's pretty damn fun"? The way Francisco yeah. Lindor did on Monday. Um. So I did. I was once the uh, named the honorary president of Taco Bell. I do. I remember day. that. Yeah. Um. And so that day, but that <laughs> that was probably it. You would have signed an 11-year contract to remain the the oh, yeah. chairman of yeah, the yeah. Taco Bell. I mean, as long as they let me keep operating the sour cream gun, then yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I I, I want to get on to a couple other topics, um, but just on the, on the Lindor thing, all I could think of is I don't know if you remember this, and this is off this is off topic a little bit, but uh, Marty Noble, the the longtime late yeah. Mets beat writer always had a thing where he every year he like rechristened Port St. Lucie uh you know with some other name like I remember like when the replacement players were there he called it Port St. Lonesome and it was like uh, it had a little bit of a, a a gimmicky edge to it but it was uh it was always a fun thing and I it just strikes me that this year based at least the first few days is just very much Port St. Lindor yeah I mean like if you are a Mets fan uh how how much better could he have done this so far? Have, have like embraced the mood in, in, in Port St. Lucie. You know, you, you mentioned the jacket, which was uh, like the perfect way to introduce yourself to the Mets so cool. uh, and to New York city that way. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's been a leader you know, on the backfield workouts. Um, you know, er- everything that he could do well by March 2nd, uh, he's done well by, by March 2nd. Uh, so you just hope that continues. And and one thing you know to mention with with these guys and extensions, it's been really interesting to hear. You know, this is Louis Rojas, this is players we've talked to mention those two guys specifically as like the leaders of your position player group. Like mm-hmm. th- those are the guys leading the way for you. Uh, and so you know, it's not a great sign if those guys express a willingness to sign something long term, and you're not able to do that. Uh, and I think like especially with Conforto, and I, I made this point kind of in a minor way in my story on Monday is he's been like, he's the oldest of that, that home, gr- that homegrown core, that, that group with Alonzo and McNeil and Nimmo and all them, Dom mm-hmm. Smith and, and JD's not homegrown, but he's, he's, More he's, he's part of the clan yeah. by now. Um, right. That, uh, you know, if you, you want to treat that person well, because it reflects well about you to the rest of the group. You know, if, if Conforto does everything right, if he's the leader uh, of, of that group of players, if he performs well on the field and then the push comes to shove, it's time to, to pay the man and you don't, it's a pretty negative sign to give to everyone else about how this ownership is going to operate. It's the same way, you know, with DeGrom a couple of years ago. Like if, if, this, if DeGrom pitches the way he did in 2018 and, you know, his agent is running the negotiation from the Mets side of things and you can't come to terms... Uh, that doesn't speak well of your front office or your organization. So I think beyond the on-field stuff here, there is kind of a, a sentimental reason, uh, not just to the fan base, but to the clubhouse with a guy like Conforto uh, to, to try to make something work as, as much as you can. 
Well, and something, and I don't remember if I brought it up on the first episode of this show or on the like test episode we did before we even started. So I don't know if this is uh, rehashing an old pointer or presenting a new one, but something that has frustrated me in recent years is, is I really think the Mets should have should have already signed Conforto to an extension and uh, probably already signed Syndergaard to an extension too, and they probably should have signed DeGrom to an extension long before they did. Um, you know, the way they did once with with David Wright and Jose Reyes and, and the way so many teams do effectively, the Indians among them. Um, so, I you know, I don't think they should just be trying to, like, I understand that, that Conforto and Lindor are the top priorities because they're star players bound for free agency, as is Marcus Stroman and, and, and Syndergaard, who you probably want to assess before you, you go into an extension talk. But, you know, they should, they should be looking to extend Jeff McNeil right now and, and, and Nimmo and, and Alonzo and, and so many of these guys, if they believe in them, like now's, now's the time to make that move. Yeah, and I, I was actually surprised because I asked Alderson about that on Monday. You know, a, a lot of questions had been about Conforto and Lindor, and he had mentioned Syndergaard as a possibility, uh, kind of notably not mentioning Stroman. Um, and I asked, well, you know, uh, sorry, or, I want to just hit pause. Can you tell me? Do you think that's meaningful that he didn't mention Stroman, or was it I an think, oversight? I think it, part of it's an oversight because you know Stroman like just came back to the team, but I also mm-hmm. think it suggests. Uh, as you know, I, I don't think the Mets thought that Stroman for, for much of 2020 thought Stroman would be on the 2021 Mets. I think it was really only uh, as, as as the season came to an end and everything worked itself out that it, that seemed more like a legitimate possibility with him accepting the, the qualifying offer. So I don't think they're operating with the thought that he's going to be a member of the team next year either. Um, you know, I, I think if it comes down to Syndergaard or Stroman to them. It's probably they'd probably choose Syndergaard as long as he looks healthy enough. He's the guy they know classic better. heightism. Classic heightism. Right, exactly. Um, he's the guy they know better, um, and, and I, I, it just feel you know, especially with the way Alderson put it Monday, it suggests that that's the guy they have uh, a little higher in the pecking order, maybe a higher ceiling as a performer, even if the track records are pretty similar at this point. Uh, so, so that's that's what I think of that. I, I you know I don't think it was meant to be a diss in any way towards Stroman. Um, I, I also, you know, I don't think Marcus Stroman is like that interested in discussing a contract extension right now uh, after thinking what the market might be for him, causing him to take the qualifying offer. But I interrupted you while you were telling me when they're going to give Jeff McNeil a, a contract extension. Yeah. So I asked Alderson, you know, as are you thinking, are you looking into extensions with any other players that are further from free agency, whether in arbitration or, or pre-arb? Because, uh, you know, like, Nimmo and Edwin Diaz are free agents after 2022, I believe. Um, you know, you've got uh, Dom Smith is in arbitration now. Uh, you've got Alonzo and McNeil are will be in arbitration next year, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, like like you said, with Wright and Reyes, that was the way to make those guys affordable for longer. It was a way to get some cost certainty with them as they got better and better uh, in their what would have been arbitration and early free agent years uh so it would make sense the mets have been really a a risk averse with this this concept over the last decade to extend some of that young core now you know give alonzo a deal that pays him more now than he would otherwise make but pays him less later than he would otherwise make and maybe a lot less later than he would otherwise make but alderson surprised me in saying basically that uh, you know, sure, you can get some cost certainty, but at the expense of financial flexibility, um, 
I, oh, I tend to think, no. you know, financial flexibility is not an end in itself. Stop. Um, yeah. I, that's, it, I hate, that's a dirty word. Financial. Yeah, but, I never want to hear, I never want to hear anyone in a Mets front office use the term financial flexibility again for the rest of my life. The I guy has $14 billion. <laughs> I believe there are a couple of financial flexibility banners hanging in Tropicana field. Um, yeah. Most, most, wins per dollar dollar per wins whatever it is with the race um so you know like i i understand you don't want to do it before this season with some of those guys because it affects your luxury to you know that you don't want it to, to start in 2021 it mm -hmm. affects your luxury tax if you give pete alonzo and i have not done thorough research on on what his contract would look like let's say seven years and 91 million dollars or something um you know, he's, he's, he's going to make less than a million dollars this year. You know, he'll count less than a million dollars towards luxury tax. You give him seven years and $91 million. Maybe you give him $3 million this year, but he'll count 13 million against the luxury tax. You don't want to do that yet. And maybe their plan is to not do that for a couple of years, but then those guys, the, the, the extensions just get more and more expensive for those guys. Like we saw with DeGrom, you know, if they'd sign, if they'd given DeGrom an extension after 2015, uh, it's a, it looks a lot different than it did after 2018 when he won the Cy Young. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I find it frustrating. And, and I think that part of it is just, I, you know, and this is such classic, like, first week of spring training games thought, man, I love this team. Like, what a, what a fun, there are so many fun, just like, like, Marcus Stroman talked his way into the to the starting the spring training game supposedly, and you know just a guy I think is is a really really entertaining pitcher to watch. Uh, Dom Smith, uh, Pete Alonso, Brandon Nimmo, Ed, all uh, and Lindor obviously. Like there's just so many guys on the team that just seem like so cool. I don't know, I, you know, maybe it's because I'm I'm now separated it from it a little bit and haven't been spending as much time around the clubhouse. Like maybe you'll correct me, but like from a, a like purely like sitting at home watching the game on my couch standpoint, like I just want I, this is the I'm I could roll with this squad for the next ten years. So I just say extend them all. I unfortunately have not spent much time in the clubhouse myself lately. Uh, right, it does, there's it a whole thing. Like, there's a whole thing. <laughs> it's it's a whole deal. Uh, it does like. You saw, I, you know, I think, I, I, you know, you felt it at the time in the second half of the 2019 season, but I think even even in the moment, I underrated kind of what that those two two and a half months felt like for Mets fans. Uh, Dom Smith on the on the with the scooter, he had the mobility scooter or whatever, you know, with the right. bum ankle, yeah, and he was flying out on the field on the thing. It was like that that I mean that like saved baseball for me i, I gotta say like that just uh, it was a there was a dark time in my baseball fandom and that there was just it was such a joy it, it, it's there's so much enjoyment in these guys they just they're ha clearly having fun and not in a obnoxious way just like this is a cool group of guys to watch play baseball i like i do think they genuinely like each other uh and i'm you know you can't always tell as a sports writer uh, even when you're in the clubhouse, if that's true, mm -hmm. but it seemed that way uh, down the stretch in 2019 for sure, uh, and it still seems that way now when they they talk about each other uh, over Zoom. So it's it's fun. And to I'll, I could tell you, I could tell you that it sure didn't seem that way down the stretch in 2007. <laughs> yeah, like you know, we, I, I remember the first baseball team I covered on a full beat was the 2011 Red Sox. Uh, who are was that the chicken and beer? Was that the chicken, chicken and beer year? The chicken and beer year. I'm just like the team 
hating all of each other by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, you could tell they didn't really like each other, but <laughs> me being in my first year, I was kind of like, oh, baseball teams don't like each other. How about that? You know, it, to me, it, like I had no basis of comparison. So I didn't realize that like this was a toxic atmosphere. Uh, and then, you know, the next year when they had Bobby Valentine, it was much of the same. It was weird when I covered a team that actually did like each other, which took until 2013. And then you're like, oh, like this seems like it's much more fun to to play on a team like this, to be around a team like this, to cover a team like this uh, that genuinely enjoys each other's company. It was very strange at that point. Uh, and it's really fun as a fan base when your team comes across that way uh, and seems to, at least as far as, as me and you can tell, back it up like in reality. Well, and I will throw in that there's a lot of chicken and egg to this too, right? Because it's a lot easier for uh, everyone to get along. Like just everybody's happier if the team is good. And so the players get along a little bit better. So if the, if the th- things start unraveling like they did for that Red Sox team, like all of those little like clubhouse beefs just sort of escalate, I think. Yeah, I mean, like when they were... I don't know what their best stretch was in the middle of the summer. They seemed to get along a little bit better than than when they went 7-20 and 20 in September. And, you know, nothing against Marcus Stroman. It was not like the Mets acquiring Stroman in, in 2019, which was around the time they got hot. They'd, they'd won a couple games before that. Uh, like it's it's not like he showed up and everyone started liking each other a lot more. It was they they liked each other, uh, but <laughs> they didn't play well enough for that to really matter. Uh, and then once they got hot, it, it kind of snowballed in in a good way for them uh, for much of that August and early September. All right, this is uh, a change of course, but we talked a little bit before about how there are very few real roster battles here. I think there's some uncertainty to be at how many exactly how many position players and pitchers they'll carry. Uh, we mentioned Jose Martinez. He seems like a guy who's like sort of very much on that fringe. Um, I don't know. I mean, you could tell me if if you think the the backup catcher situation is, is going to be Nito and, and he's safe. Um, but, but for the most part, I mean, we're talking about the fringes, right? Like the last two spots in the bullpen, the last spot in the rotation, the last spot on the bench. Um, and so what I want to know is, is there anyone totally off the radar, a non-roster invite type guy that you think will eventually contribute in 2021 that we are not talking about making the opening day roster? You know, it's probably uh, like, I think bullpen guys make the most sense for this, right? right? Because that, like, that's but the least place. fun, but the least fun answer. <laughs> right. You know, the, the, it'd, it'd be more fun if I was like, you know what? I think Pete Crow Armstrong is going to be playing center field by the end of the season. Um, but that I, would be a lie. You don't think that. <laughs> no, sorry. N- nothing against Pete. Uh, no, I, I, think, I mean, he's a big, big, big prospect. But he's not going to be playing. He's two years away, right? Right. Like all of those prospects, like do not expect any of those prospects to be in the major leagues in 2021. Sorry. Um, I, I think if you're looking at, like, if you want to have someone to root for as a prospect to get there, uh, like Khalil Lee, who's on the 40 man roster, mm-hmm. is a guy who could see major league time this year. I would not expect him to be like, to, to come up, be given a starting role and run with it at this point. I think that he that seems like a, almost a candidate for that late season, like Terrence Gore role too. If he's just super fast, you know, you can always use a, an extra base runner. Right. Uh, but I, I think if you're looking at like the true non-roster invitees, uh, you're looking at generally bullpen guys, cause that's where you can climb the ladder quickest. You know, you can start 
uh, the season as the last guy in the bullpen and then be pitching like the eighth inning of a tie game against the Braves by April 25th. Um, you know, like Tommy Hunter uh, is a guy mm-hmm. who's, who's been pretty good lately. Uh, even last year, I think for the Phillies where everyone had a nine ERA in the bullpen, his was like four. So that, you know, that's pretty good. Um, I think, you know, Jared Eikhoff, who's starting for the Mets on Wednesday, is a guy who could work his way into a, a the conversation of a starting role at some point uh, this season. So I think those are two guys that stick out. I don't, that seems like a Philly bias. Um, <laughs> Jerry Blevins, uh, who pitched on, on Tuesday for the first time and whose hair looks much longer than it ever was. Yeah. Mets. Yeah. He looks uh, a, he's wearing a, a good, good deal shaggier in general. He's starting to look <laughs> a little bit piratey. He's getting like a little bit of a pirate look going, <laughs> but I don't want to be a pirate. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think those guys like that. Those are the less fun answers. Do you, who are you rooting for the most out of? Out of um. That well, I guess I would be. Well, obviously, I mean, you got to root for Blevins because we like. I feel like there's that's he's a he's sort of a fan favorite. Um, Tommy Hunter's a a, a fun guy too. Like he is a he's a pretty entertaining pitcher. Um, and and a pretty entertaining personality too in in what I've seen of him. Um, so that's a, that's a guy, and and I just I don't I wouldn't be surprised at all if he he plays a role in the team. Uh, a couple of guys, Malik Smith is in camp. Uh, he was as of 2018 a three and a half win player for the for the Rays. Um, he had a had a bad season last year and and a, and a pretty lousy like sort of replacement level 2019. But I just I don't feel like the um, Almora and Pilar are like so cemented into those those sort of like extra center field outfield spots that I that I that I can't see Malik Smith getting getting into that mix and 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 succeeding. And another guy sort of in the same idea, but who, who doesn't have major league time, I don't believe, uh, but played in in the game on Tuesday. If you look up Drew Ferguson and and how he has performed. Uh, coming up the minors, he this guy's hit at every level, and it he seems to me, at least, and and I don't know, I I don't know his his story intimately, but if you just you know go to the baseball reference page, what he looks like is is a story, um, and 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 Mike Baxter is the guy that comes to mind, where you know guys who aren't, I think he was a 19th round pick, and and not you know probably never considered a big prospect, and and those guys kind of get. Um, they're not prioritized necessarily in the systems when they're coming up. And so sometimes you get guys who perform all the time and they just, they they don't necessarily get opportunities. Like I remember talking to Baxter about it saying like, dude, you always hit. Like if you look at your stats, like you're always good. Why are you not, why were you not an everyday player at, at uh, these various minor league levels? Well, the Padres had, you know, this prospect and this prospect and you know, Will Venable was right ahead of me and, and whatever else. And so, you know, Ferguson seems to me like one of those guys who kind of, uh, slipped through the cracks a little bit and and just has has hit a ton um, and looks like he can play the outfield a little bit so that's a that's a name I that's a that's a guy I'm rooting for you know I always I always pull for the the long time sort of triple A guys who perform but don't seem to get chances yeah like he was a, a rule five minor league phase pick so mm-hmm. uh, like that's that's a fun way to acquire a guy uh, if he turns out to be anything and, and you're right like when I would cover the minors. Uh, I always found it interesting, like you would cover AAA uh, and the team's top prospect would be at AAA and he would hit like 
255 with six home runs and 35 RBIs over the course of the season. And he'd still be in, you know, that's a decent season, like still a top prospect for them. And then they'd bring in some 28 year old who hit 312, hit 30 bombs, drove in 80. Uh, and that, that guy's like, yeah, we're just going to let him walk in minor league free agency. He's nothing. Uh, right. The, so the, the, I'm, very like weird my, to me, that dichotomy. Yeah. Val- Valentino Pascucci, of course, my, my <laughs> hero. Still to this day, people say like, if someone will tweet at me every once in a while, someone will be like, are you the Valentino Pascucci guy? Like that was a, a campaign I ran on the, for the uh, 2008 Mets to, to bring that guy up to, to hit off the bench. I maintain they would have made the playoffs if they did. But that's a, a whole other story for 12 years ago. We got a good question from a reader. Uh, this is from Mike Landis. And if I could just say um, very briefly on, on, on Mike's behalf or, or to, to thank Mike, uh, when I was working at USA Today, Mike actually was one of, I think, the only readers in in the history of that newspaper to find his way to the reader feedback area, which exists <laughs> somewhere on their website. Um, and he wrote a really nice note about my writing. And the woman who apparently was in charge of monitoring the reader feedback screen grabbed it and she sent me a note and she said like this made my day and i i in retrospect thinking back on the screen grab like i'm almost certain it was a cry for help because every other reader feedback that was there it was like there were like two QAnon people saying like why are you you know forwarding the soros agenda or whatever and then every other one was just people who were mad at their individual newspaper carrier for where they leave the USA Today. And like, oh, I can't get down the steps. Like, why can't they put it on my stoop? And, and then there's like right in the middle of all of these, like all caps complaints, just this like one very nice, very polite uh, feedback about like Ted Berg is doing a good job. So I appreciate that. And that woman, I think very much appreciated that. Mike wants to know, he says, While the Mets have a decent track record of developing prospects into major league pieces, I can't help but feel as though there's been an organizational lack of commitment to pitchers' roles. I remember Parnell, Mejia, Familia, Lugo, and a variety of other pitching prospects getting shunted back and forth between starting and relief, and I always felt a sense of helpless disappointment on those guys' behalf. Given Steve Cohen's commitment to data analytics, do you think we are going to see less of that and more of a commitment to specific pitching roles at the big league level? Um, I don't know what the data says about outcomes from less switching between starting and relief, but I have to assume it's better for the pitchers. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think uh, I agree with the premise mostly. Like like Parnell and Mejia in their little start starting experiments, I thought the the Parnell starting exper- experiment was very weird in two thousand nine because he just like he didn't have a third pitch, uh, and you're not just going to develop that at the major leagues, uh, at the major league level. Uh, for, um, Mejia was like correct me if i'm wrong he was starting in the minors and they brought him up very early to pitch out of the bullpen yeah uh, and then and they so, like, tried, yeah. tried to bring him back to starting like that was a re- it seemed like they really did jerk him around they uh, did lot. jerk him around they jerked him around a lot they brought him up because like he, he became he was the story one spring training was this kid henry mejia with this crazy pitch they were calling him the next mariano rivera um and so yeah they they brought him up and then they were like using them in mop-up roles and it just it was it was all it was all weird but then and then the talk like then they they would send him down and make him a starter the talk was that um and i think this was true that he 
uh, he had a, a specific warm-up routine he wanted to do involving like long tosses and stuff. And so he preferred to start because the way he had always prepared involved things that you just can't do in the bullpen. Um, and then I think it wasn't until he became the closer that like he started and you know, you could tell he clearly enjoyed the adrenaline of that. Um, but yeah, he was definitely a guy who got jerked around, which is crazy because he was like, he was 20 and the team wasn't good. Right. Like the worst situation to put a guy in. And what's interesting about the question is, is, uh, Mike's assumption that like, you know, standard roles are probably better, right. Or, you know, not, not switching back and forth. But if you look at, you know, you look at the Rays and the Dodgers who are teams we hold up as these, these beacons of, uh, good analysis, they do tend to to knock their pitchers around back and forth between the, the rotation of the bullpen. Look at what, what L.A. did with Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin uh, at the end of last season into the postseason uh, and what they're, I think, presume what I presume they're going to do with them at the start of this year, which is to use them more out of the bullpen or as depth starters. Uh, so I, I think I think the move in, in analytics is probably less to concrete roles and probably more toward this kind of spectrum of pitching roles where you don't have like your 60 inning reliever and your 200 inning starter, you have a bunch of guys who can throw anywhere between 60 and 180 innings. And some of them throw 110, some of them throw 70. Uh, and uh, you try to get the most out of your staff that way. So I, I think if you're looking for clarity in pitching roles for these guys, I, I think it's just going to get more muddled uh, the, the more we go into the future with the way the sport is going with, with how it uses its starting pitchers. There's going to be fewer guys who stand out as definite starters for you. Uh, and even, you know, before they reach that point, I think you'll see them out of the bullpen. You know, the way we used to see guys in like, well, not me and you, we're, we're not old enough for that, but the way you, you used to see uh, starting pitchers come up and like, you know, they were used out of the bullpen for a year as a swing man or something before mm-hmm. they got their real chance in the rotation. Well, Adam Wainwright is a guy Mets fans will remember for doing that, uh, right? Because he was he was in the yes, bullpen yes. the year with 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 Beltron. I think you're right. I think that I think the paradigm shift is is already underway. And to me, it seems like unless there is some sort of rule change, it is just going to keep to continue towards murkier distinctions in in what guys do pitching wise because I think it makes more sense for teams. I think you want, you know, obviously you want if Jacob deGrom can handle pitching 200 innings, you want Jacob deGrom pitching 200 innings. There's one Jacob deGrom. And I think for the most part it's it's lesser pitchers in on this earth. It all, every single one of us on this earth is a lesser pitcher than than Jacob deGrom. Um and so those guys you need to put them in the best spots and obviously we've seen that got their time through the order is is a is a tough spot for a lot of guys and and teams have moved away from them that wisely i think and so i think you'll see increasing fluidity in how teams use use pitchers i would also argue like i to me um and this is this is heresy and and you have to be careful about like saying you want guys to pitch way more because i obviously don't want to risk injuries but i know degrom i believe throws two bullpens between starts and to me, it's like, man, even if DeGrom's throwing 80% in those bullpens, like, can, can we just make that in a, can you just make that in a game? Like, why do we have this guy throwing any pitches that don't count? Um, and so I would almost love to see teams toy a little more with, like, flexibility among a guy like that. Like, could you, is there a way to use an ace pitcher on his throw day as an opener to throw, like, one, you know, proscribed and very orderly clean inning? 
Um, I think that would be cool too. Um, but yeah, I don't think I would guess that it's going the other way. I would guess it's going the other way. I think that they would probably, you would hope prioritize communication. And I think teams have gotten a lot better about telling guys what they expect of them. And, um, I think one of the things you see when you go, I remember doing a story about the Rays and when they were first using the opener, um, and one of the surprising things about it was just how very on board every guy was. Um, and if you go, you know, I, same thing with, with the Astros in like the early days of the shift, even, you know, there was, you, there was this like backlash against the shift very early, but if you went to the Astros, the team that was doing it the most, every guy, every starter to a man understood and, and said, yeah, you know, we know, we know it benefits. We've, they show us the, the spray charts, they show us the data. So I think that. A big component of it is just telling guys what you expect. Like, hey, like, look, you know, we're if you're good, we're going to give you all the innings you can handle. So don't worry about that. Uh, just, you know, we're going to we're going to I'm not going to say jerk you around because I don't think it is jerking around. If we're telling you what our plan is, you're going to both start and relief at different times. Yeah, I think you need buy in for that. But guys and guys will have buy in to a point. They'll, they'll start they'll stop buying in when they feel like it's preventing them from getting paid. Uh, which, you know, in, in arbitration and stuff, not having the number of starts or innings that, that might start to add up on you uh, in a negative fashion. I was disappointed at the end of last season. Uh, like, I, I wondered right from the start of, of the shortened season, you know, in, in July. I was like, you know, the pitchers going so little this year. We're starting pitchers only having like 12 starts. Like, can we get to a situation uh, late September? Jacob, you know, last week of the season, Jacob deGrom starts on Monday. His scheduled start is Sunday for the season finale. Can the Mets pull him out of the bullpen to, to close out Thursday's win if they need him? Right. Like, in a way you would see, you know, we, we saw the 2018 Red Sox. Their bullpen was essentially their starting rotation on their throw days. Uh, right. In, in the postseason. Uh, the Astros did it in 2017. Uh, the Nats in, in 2019. Like, that's how you put piece your bullpen together in October. I thought last year you might see a team try to do that more uh, into the regular season. Uh, and no one, I don't think anyone really did. The Mets were, were clearly not in a position to do it by the, by the, the end of the season. But I, you know, I remember asking Porcello that because he was part of the 2018 Sox doing it. Uh, and he, he was like, yeah, like I'd be totally on board with doing that in September. You can't do that for a full season, clearly, because uh, that just wears on you over time. Um, but, you know, for an adrenaline stretch, like, yeah, that would be so much fun. I would love to do that. Uh, and it was too bad that no one took them up on that. I want to wrap up, but I do want to say to Mike's question, and thank you to Mike for asking a, a very interesting question, um, a very interesting possibility, I thought, and I believe it was on The Athletic, I think it was from Jason Stark, uh, was the idea, and under the premise that you want to see a starting pitcher work deep into the game and, and you know, sure to have, like, the way we want to mint star pitchers, I think, is is built around that event. And the starting pitcher is the only thing in baseball that really creates that event of of Harvey Day. And so as you move away from this, you know, you lose that element, which I think is a, is a fun part of being a fan. And so uh, what I believe it was Jason's suggestion was, and, and he quoted some players talking about it, and, and he didn't present it as a serious idea, just like a fun thought experiment, but was uh, having a universal DH for as long as your starting pitcher is in the game. And as soon as your starting pitcher leaves the game, the the pitcher spot is in the lineup for both teams, for both leagues. 
Um, and I think that's brilliant because I think, and, and I don't think they'll do it because I think it's a, it comes with a little bit of injury risk that you're going to push your starters too long to keep that DH in there. But I do think it's a, it's a brilliant idea to sort of settle this DH thing and also, you know, encourage teams to ride with starters a little bit long. So we do maintain that, that star power of it. Yeah, it's, it's a bummer that you're bringing this up right now at the end of an episode because I could we could do like a whole series of episodes of how I feel about this idea because it's something that I had actually thought of independently of Jason. Um, you know, I think by like the beginning of 2020, I was thinking through this idea and I I had talked about it with my editor. Uh, I think before the shortened season started, uh, and then again in the off season, I was I was thinking about it, and then I heard Jason was writing about it, uh, and was going to write about it in like a way better way than I would. Uh, and actually talking to people and bouncing the idea off of other people. I think you would have. I think you would have done a great job with it, Tim. But yeah, <laughs> he did. He did. He also that. did a great job with it. Because I, I love that it keeps the strategy uh, of a late game National League scenario, um, and unlike kind of a traditional NL scenario, it incentivizes you to leave the starting pitcher in the game. You know, the situation you talk about in a in a classic NL game is like it's the top of the seventh. Uh, your pitcher is is worked six really good innings, but now it's it's two outs, two men on, and the pitching spot is due up. So you're going to take him out of the game, like you you know it'd be, you really want to get that extra inning out of him, uh, and he's he's pitched really well. But because his spot is up, we're going to take him out uh, to get a pinch hitter up there. Having this DH, uh, I forget what what Jason calls it, uh, the double DH or something, uh, double substitution. Uh, I forget. Sorry, Jason. Um, that having that in there means like you want to keep the pitcher in for longer so that your best DH can bat for longer. I would tweak some things with regard to it. Like if you brought in a long reliever or a bulk inning guy, as teams do uh, behind an opener that your, your DH can then bat as long as that guy, you, you know, a different hitter can bat as long as that guy's in the game. Uh, like you, you as a hitter bat for one specific pitcher as okay. long as he's in the game. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't, you would, could still have openers in that scenario. Uh, but I, I just like how it, it would reward defensive versatility, not just for your DH, but for other people to move around around him. You could still have double switches. And, you know, let's say Pete Alonso is the Mets DH and you're losing. Well, then you just double switch him into play first base uh, so that you can keep his bat in the lineup. Uh, I think there's a lot of fun strategy behind it. But like you, uh, I think it's probably a bit too complicated for the sport to embrace uh, in the in the time it needs to embrace it. I think once you kind of start with the simpler method kind of uh, of just having a DH and that's it, uh, it's really hard to go backward to something more complicated. And I don't I don't think they're ever going to embrace something that encourages teams to ride pitchers longer. Right. Like, I think that's that's basically what what it's going to boil down to, unfortunately, because it's a great idea. And it's interesting in, in Jason's piece, uh, one of the, you know, I think he talked to four people like a, a manager, uh, an executive, a pitcher um, and, and a DH. I think he talked to Adam Dunn as the DH um, and, you know, Dunn very obviously was not on board because it takes at bats away from a player like him. But also the team executive was against the idea because that makes team construction harder. You know, you've got to pay more guys uh, in that, that scenario is more complicated than than something you're used to. Uh, so it's, it's not a surprise, you know, you would guess that a team executive would not like that scenario, uh, or that owners would not like that scenario because it probably leads you to have to pay, uh, more of your bench guys than you do now. Cause they'd be a bigger part of your, your lineup on a, on a regular basis. 
Well, Tim, we can talk hypotheticals next week for certain. For now, we need to wrap up. So I will say thank you again to Mike for emailing. If you'd like to email us a question, you can get at me at asktedberg at gmail.com. And I will relay it to Tim. Uh, If you would love to leave feedback or rate us, review us, we're on iTunes and, and everywhere where you can find podcasts. Thank you again so much for listening and peace out. Adios. (laughs) 